Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the book of Acts in the New Testament. As you're turning there, let me ask you to ponder that word martyr. What comes to mind when you hear that word martyr? Maybe you think of someone who has a bit of a martyr complex. If uh, you say, woe is me, and you're always the victim, well, then you might be accused of having a martyr complex. Maybe instead, when you hear the word martyr, you think of an Islamic martyr. In other words, a terrorist who is willing to forfeit his or her life in order to kill others. Or maybe you think of a Christian martyr, one who is willing to to die for their faith in Jesus Christ. They are unwilling to renounce their faith in Christ, even in the face of death. Well, it's the last of those categories that is most accurate. The word martyr does spring out of the Christian tradition uniquely. In fact, it's fascinating how it came to be known as it is to us today as as dying for faith in Christ. It didn't always mean dying for faith in Christ. That word martyr in Greek, martyr, almost the same exact word and almost the same spelling apart from different language letters. But, But originally that word in the Greek meant witness. Witness. It's the word that Jesus used at the end of Luke's gospel account. You will be my witnesses. My martyrs. It's the same word used at the beginning of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. It's what Peter was doing back in Acts chapter 2, verse 40. He bore witness. To witness means to testify to proclaim Christ, to to represent him to the world, to be an ambassador. It means to evangelize, to good news as a verb, to good news people, to preach the gospel. Now, if you do that enough in certain contexts, you get into trouble. You might be threatened. You might be kicked out. You might be fired. You might be jailed. In certain contexts, you might even be killed. And that happened enough in the early church that that word martyr began to morph, began to take on a new shade of meaning. It came to mean not just witnessing, but dying for the witness. In later parts of the New Testament, only context will tell us whether we should think of this word as witnessing without the threat of death, or witnessing unto death. Listen to just a few verses from the last book of the Bible, Revelation, probably the last book written in the Bible. And here you can see that the lines between martyr and witness, those different English words, they seem to overlap. So Revelation 2, verse 13, Jesus says to the church at Pergamum, You hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. He's a witness who was killed. Or Revelation 6, verse 9, where John saw those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And then finally, Revelation 17, verse 6. John says, I saw the woman, the the Babylonian woman, the harlot. She was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus or witnesses. Well, the word martyr or witness isn't in our passage today, but this is still very, I hope, helpful background because we come to a story today of what is commonly called the first Christian martyr, Stephen. We come to the story of Stephen in Acts 6 
and 7 today. He's far from the first person to be a witness in the book of Acts, but he is the first person to die for that witness in the book of Acts. But it may miss the spirit of our passage to call Stephen the first martyr. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, I think goes out of his way to tell this story in a very familiar way. It's reminiscent of other parts of the Bible, specifically Jesus. It is Jesus-like through and through. That's not to suggest that Stephen was some kind of second Messiah or Jesus 2.0 or something, but but Stephen's trial and death are told to us with purposefully overt similarities to Jesus' trial and death, as we'll see. Our passage will show us Stephen facing familiar charges. They're familiar to us if we know the gospel accounts and what Jesus faced in his trial. We'll see he faced a familiar message or really spoke a familiar message. Not that he stole a sermon from Jesus, but but it's clearly Jesus-like. It's clearly shaped by how Jesus taught him and the disciples to read the Old Testament. And then Stephen faces a familiar death. Not that he dies on a cross or between two thieves, but But there's some things he says in his dying breaths that are overtly, purposefully reminiscent of Jesus' dying breaths. It's purposefully familiar or similar to Jesus. We'll consider why both Stephen and Luke went out of their way to put echoes of Jesus in this story We'll talk about that later on, but for starters, we may just want to begin by thinking of Stephen as the second martyr, Jesus being the first, Jesus always being the preeminent one. Jesus is the witness par excellence, and he is the martyr par excellence, we could say. He's more than just a witness, he's more than just a a martyr, but he is not less than a martyr, the best one so far. And Stephen is a pretty good number two. Now we have before us a long passage, 70 verses or so. You might be wondering if we're going to read them all or read them all at once. And I've been wondering that too. (laughs) Up until this morning, I still wasn't sure. But I decided we're going to read it all. We're going to read it all because I think it'll be good for us to see the whole picture before we start trying to chop it up into smaller chunks and and make it a little bit more bite size. It took Max McLean about 11 minutes to read this. I looked it up on the web today. So that's probably what it'll take us. But don't watch your watches, please. Let's just look down in our Bibles or upon the screens as the text comes up. Or even if you'd like, close your eyes and just listen to this. And try to imagine it. If that's helpful to you, just do that. But let's listen to God's word. Let's hear this magnificent account of the Christ-like Stephen who was a witness and a martyr. Chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, And of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. 
The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land and the land, from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come and worship me in this place. And he gave, them, he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out the fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought, bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds." When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, when he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why are you doing wrong to each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I've surely seen the affliction of the people who are in Egypt and have heard of their groaning, and I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. 
As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it's written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years of the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech, the star of your god Raphen, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it, with, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of all Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Well, as I mentioned already, we have in this passage a familiar charge, a familiar message, a familiar death, but then... As we begin the opening of chapter 8, we'll also see a new outcome. If we have time, we'll get to that. We'll see. <laughs> so first, there's a familiar charge as we try to break this up a bit. The end of chapter 6 shows us a familiar charge because Stephen, like his master Jesus, has spoken words that have caused a stir. He spoke with fullness, we're told, full of grace and power, full of wisdom and the Spirit. We were first introduced to Stephen back in chapter 6 where we learned that he's a, a servant in the church. He's, he's in charge of the administration of feeding the poor in the church. He's a practical man, an administrator, but he's also a Bible man and he's a preacher. And he's in trouble for his incessant proclamation. What has he been proclaiming? Well, we're not told exactly, only what people said of what he'd been proclaiming. Verse 11, they charged him with blasphemy, with speaking against Moses and God. Verse 13, some said, this man never stops speaking words against the holy place, that is the temple, and against the law, the law of Moses. And we said that, we heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth would destroy the temple and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. 
Does that sound familiar to you? Especially the part about the temple? It's much like the charges they laid upon Jesus at his trial. Jesus' earlier teaching on the temple had been heard and slightly misunderstood. It was radical, but it wasn't quite as they represented it during Jesus' trial. Back to John chapter 2, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus said some fateful words there. He said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Now John tells us that Jesus was speaking first and foremost about his body, the temple. Destroy this and it will be raised in three days, referring to his resurrection. He said in Matthew 12... Something greater than the temple is here, referring to himself. That caused a bit of a stir. He portrayed himself to be the new temple, the the better place of God's dwelling, God's inhabitation among men in the world. And he also made it explicit, at least at times, that one day that temple would actually come down. The, The physical building of the temple would one day be destroyed. Mark 13, he said, there will not be one stone left upon another. All of it will be thrown down. But he didn't say he would destroy the temple, and that's what they got wrong in his trial and now in Stephen's trial. No, he said it was coming down. It was, in fact, the Romans who destroyed the temple in the year A.D. 70. Jesus said he was the true temple, referring to his body and his, and his resurrection. And he described his followers as, in a sense, little temples in little Jerusalems. There to be cities on a hill and lights that shine bright. They're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Stephen must have been proclaiming these kinds of things that Jesus taught. Maybe he also relayed in his public teaching Jesus's private moment with the woman at the well in Samaria where she asked him which mountain do we worship God on and he said the time's coming in fact it's now when it's not about mountains anymore it's not about place anymore it's not Jerusalem it's not temple it's about Messiah it's about worship in spirit and in truth and worship now is everywhere So the charges against Stephen aren't quite right. They're close, but not quite right. Jesus did say say some shocking things about the temple, and he did relativize Moses. He's Lord of the Sabbath, things like that. But they didn't quite get it right. And yet, they're right. The accusers of Stephen are right that the law and the temple are crucial touch points in the divide between crusty old Judaism and Jesus. The law and the temple. The law and the temple. Stephen won't directly address those things per se, but he is going to go about it in a really helpful way, a way at first that seems harmless, uncontroversial. He simply tells the Old Testament story. He gives the cliff notes of the Old Testament. You might have wondered before, the Old Testament's awful big. How do I make sense of it? Read Stephen's sermon. But he tells the story in such a way Oh, that it is mightily controversial. We know that. We already read the story. We know it ends in his death. So secondly, there's a familiar message in chapter 7. It's familiar not because he's giving one of Jesus' sermons verbatim, but it's generally what Jesus taught his disciples. It's, it's how he taught them to read the Old Testament scriptures. Remember, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all the things in the scriptures regarding himself. Moses, prophets, and the Psalms were all about him, and they had to be fulfilled by him. Notice chapter 7, verse 52. All this meandering through the Old Testament leads to the coming of the righteous one. That's Jesus who was crucified. That's where he's going. 
but he takes the long road there. If you got your bulletin with you this morning, you might want to look on the back for the sermon notes page. And we've got some, some sub points that might help you follow along with Stephen's long sermon of 53 verses or so. Note there that Stephen walks through four eras or epics of biblical history. He talks about four moments or seasons or four guys, you could say, who are really important to the story. He, he deals with Abraham, then Joseph, then Moses, and, and then the days of David and Solomon in order to talk about the, the tabernacle and the temple. Now, if these are a lot of new names and new categories for you, bear with us, uh, and we'll try to explain what these things mean when we get to each of them. Like with Abraham, here's the story of Abraham. He was a heathen, and God showed up and spoke to him. God called him out of Mesopotamia and gave him promises of a promised land and a great offspring. This is found in Genesis 12. It's repeated and enlarged in Genesis 15 and again in 17, if you want to look those up. These are foundational promises to the whole Bible, to the whole plan of God. Even at the end of time, in a new heaven and a new earth, the Bible describes that in sort of Abrahamic terms. Here's the fulfillment of what was promised to Abraham long ago. Everything in the Bible was leading up to that Abrahamic moment, and everything in the Bible after that is looking back to it. Yes, those Abrahamic promises flow through and land on or are fulfilled in Christ. But they look back to Abraham. And that's why Jesus could say in John 8, Father Abraham, rejoice to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham knew that it wasn't about him or his kids there's something coming. There's a singular seed, not just many seeds. And Stephen here is laying the groundwork with Abraham in order to show how the promises to Abraham not only land on Christ, that's where he's going, but they are played out through the Old Testament. Like with Joseph. Joseph, verses 9 to 16, tell us about Joseph, one of Jacob's 12 sons. These 12 sons would, would be the fountainheads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Joseph was the youngest of these 12 brothers, and he was the least liked among the brothers. One day when they were still at home, they turned on their younger brother, Joseph. You see, Joseph had been told by God that he would be greater than his brothers, and he would be used to, to rescue his brothers. And he told them this. He he, the younger brother told them what God told him. They didn't like it. They were jealous of their brother, it says. And so they sold him into slavery in Egypt. And yet their rejection of their brother would actually be the means by which God would fulfill his promises for Joseph the younger to be the greater and to be the rescuer a famine comes into the land. Joseph is now second in command in Egypt. We're told God was with Joseph, and so Joseph had wisely stockpiled food in Egypt for this famine. And now the brothers are desperate, and they go to Egypt, and they are fed by their brother. They bow before their brother. The promises are fulfilled, and the brothers survive and the families continue. So the story continues. You fast forward many years, and now these 12 brothers and their offspring, and now a great multitude of people in, in Egypt, but they're in slavery. Enter Moses, the third guy, Moses. Stephen tells the Moses story from the book of Exodus. And God raised up Moses to be a rescuer, a redeemer, a deliverer. And like Joseph, the deliverer, Moses was rejected by his brothers. Who made you a ruler over us, they said. You know the story if you've seen the Ten Commandments movie or Disney's uh, Prince of Egypt, is that what it was called? 
You know the story, right? You know how God used Moses to, to free the people from slavery in Egypt. And they, they complained, to put it mildly. They rejected him. They, they shoved him away. They mocked him. In fact, one day, over 40 days, in fact, while Moses was up on Mount Sinai meeting with the living God, as that mountain was quaking, uh, looked to be on fire, a cloud descended. He's meeting with God and getting the Ten Commandments and other things. The people down below think, he's been gone 40 days. He's as good as dead. Let's make gods, plural, that will lead us out of here. And so they make a golden cow and they worship it. And they rejoiced in the work of their hands. In turning aside from Moses, they were turning aside from God. In rejecting him as their human deliverer, God's agent, they were rejecting God. Now, if we skip down to Stephen's application in verse 51... Here's where he really twists the screws and applies it to to those who he's talking to. You'll you'll see that this is his point. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those whom announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. You see, Israel's history is that of various redeemers and rejection. Israel's history is one of God revealing himself and his people rebelling against it. And those who reject Jesus then are of the same ilk. They're of the same line. They're of the rejection and rebellion kind of Israelites. They worship the works of their hands. And so Stephen's implying here, it's not us who are against Moses. Moses was good in his day. He was the man of the hour, really for a whole lifetime. And God spoke through him. But it didn't stop with Moses. It wasn't all about Moses. As Moses himself said, verse 37, look at that. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own brothers. That's quoting Deuteronomy 18. It's often quoted in the New Testament. Referring to Jesus, he's the prophet like Moses, the final prophet, the capital P prophet. That's probably the basis for Jesus saying in John 5, if you believed in Moses, truly believed in Moses, you'd believe in me, for he wrote of me. And so did the prophets who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Think of God's plan as a string of redeemers with lowercase r, and then all of a sudden there is the capital R, redeemer, Jesus, who comes, and things will never be the same. So Stephen's point is to these people, don't think you honor Moses when you reject the one to whom Moses was pointing. Don't think you honor Moses when you rejected the one he promised would come. You are the ones blaspheming Moses and running contrary to the law. You're just like your fathers. But there's another charge laid on Stephen. We've talked about the law, but what about the temple? So now, if you look in your sermon notes there, there's a fourth part of his message where he gets to the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle, that was that place of God's dwelling in the midst of his people, like a a tent. He traveled with his people, and when they set up their tents, they set up God's tent, and God seemed to show up. That happened until the days of David, 
And after David, his son Solomon, built a more permanent structure for God's dwelling place in the midst of his people, it was called the temple. And it was good. It had its purpose. But they shouldn't think that the temple is ultimate or that it was to be permanent. It wasn't the end-all, be-all. Look at verse 48. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. And then he goes on to quote Isaiah 66. You could even think of what he doesn't quote, what Solomon said at the dedication of the first temple in 1 Kings 8. He prayed, will God indwell? Will God, will God dwell on the earth? No, behold, the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I built. Solomon had a, a good grasp of that doctrine we called omnipresence, that God is everywhere. Sometimes he shows up specially, but he's not limited to a house. He doesn't need a house. And Stephen has been getting at this all the way back from the beginning of his sermon. He's been laying breadcrumbs down for us. Like in the days of Abraham, when God showed up and started speaking, where were they? Where was that? Oh, Mesopotamia, and then later Haran. That wasn't Israel. It wasn't Jerusalem. What about Joseph? When he was enslaved in Egypt, God was with him. He was there. God can be in Africa, and he can work. He can rescue. He can bless. In the days of slavery in Egypt, God picked Moses and God led Moses and God revealed himself to Moses. It was God who said to Moses in the land of Midian, not Israel or Jerusalem, take off your sandals. The ground you're on is holy. Why is that ground holy? Because God was there. God shows up and land gets holy. Holy lands, not holy for any other reason. The Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands. So the, tent, the, the tabernacle and the temple, they had their purposes, but never to be an end-all and a be-all. Remember that Jesus taught that he is the true and greater temple. He now is the place of God's presence. And to worship God now, it's no longer about a mountain or a building. It's about a man. It's about Messiah. Jesus promised that his spirit would dwell in and make abode within all who believe in him. They become temples. You are a temple. So now, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you can do it to the glory of God. Worship is done, yes, in worship together as a church. We shouldn't minimize that. But we should not miss that worship is not just about church. It's not just Sunday. It's not about church buildings per se. This helps us in how we talk about church. We don't say we're going to church. If we're really careful, we won't say I'm going to church, meaning 705 Osuna Road Northeast. This is a building where this church meets. This isn't a temple. This is not an old-fashioned altar. You probably heard that maybe growing up. I, I did. It's not. God is no more here in this place than if these same people were meeting in the dirt lot over across the parking lot. It's not a holy place. It's not a house of prayer. It's just a place where we meet to do what Jesus taught us to do to worship and hear his word. Now this is great news that God's worship isn't tied to Jerusalem and a temple since Jesus came. It's liberating. It's great news unless you have started to replace God with the temple. Unless the temple has become an idol for you. And I think that's the case here. In Acts chapter 7. I think Stephen's making that point because he says the people in the wilderness rejoiced in the work of their hands. That's special language for idol making, the work of their hands. 
And then he says, God doesn't dwell in buildings made with hands. Now, of course, the temple was made with hands. It didn't float down from heaven. It was rightly made with hands. But, but I think Stephen's implying this had, been, this had become to them more than just a place of worship or even the place where you do what God's called you to do. It had become precious, as in a golem sort of way, me precious. You know, Jesus was opposed throughout his ministry in various ways by the religious leaders. Do you know where the real turning point was? At least in John's gospel, it's right after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And the religious leaders do not deny it. They cannot deny it. But they respond like this. What are we to do? This man performs mighty signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take our place away. Forget that a guy went from death to life. Let's not even deal with that. The Romans better not take my house. The Romans better not take my temple. If I have to choose between God and my temple, well then, damn God. Don't mess with my temple. So sad. They could have bought in. They could have jumped into the mighty rolling tide of grace and glory that comes in Jesus Christ. But no, it says in John 11 from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And so they're doing with Stephen. They could have jumped in, they could have said, That makes perfect sense. He is the one. This changes everything. Can we get in on this? Will he let us in? Oh, he will. Just, just come humbly and in faith, and he'll forgive all your sins. But instead, verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. So now, thirdly, there's a familiar death. It's not familiar in that Jesus was stoned or that Stephen was crucified. In fact, there are many ways in which Stephen's death is dissimilar to Jesus's. Stephen's not paying for sins. The Romans here weren't involved. But it is devilish on both accounts. It's familiar in several ways, the anger, the rage, the injustice, the stubborn unwillingness to hear and to consider and engage. In Stephen's case, there's even likely some greater injustice and unbridled rage, at least regarding the trial, because in these days, the Jews by the Romans were not allowed to execute they didn't have that power. They had to run executions through the Romans. That's what they did with Jesus. But here was Stephen. They don't call up the Romans. They don't bother. This is more like a mob lynching him. They rushed at him. They dragged him out. They stoned him to death. And it is a sickening picture to read in verse 58. They laid their garments at the feet of Saul. Now, never mind Saul for just now. They laid their garments at his feet. You know what's happening here? They took off their coats. They told someone to watch their stuff because they knew they were going to be at it a while. This is going to get sweaty. Time to take your coat off. We're going to be hurling stones at this guy for a while. Someone hold my beer, is what they said. And stone after stone after stone until he was dead. Here, here they've done the very thing that Stephen was talking about and warning them about, right? That old tradition, God sends a deliverer and they ignore him. God sends a deliverer and they reject him. God reveals his presence and his law, and they turn aside to a cow-shaped gold thing and trust in that. 
Prophets come and proclaim the righteous ones coming and they kill those prophets. The righteous one shows up and they kill him too. And now here's Stephen, another messenger. And like Moses, at the beginning of the story, we read that his face was shining like an angel. He was full of grace and truth. He was full of the spirit, full of power, full of wisdom. And they killed him ruthlessly. Just like Jesus. And just like Jesus, in his dying breath, Stephen said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Just like his Savior, he prayed in a loud voice, verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It was a familiar death in many ways. Jesus not only died for Stephen, but showed him how to die. Now, why is that Stephen's story told to us with so many overt similarities as Jesus' trial and death? Well, I think in large part to show Stephen as an exemplary follower of Christ and a consciously a man consciously following Christ. If you speak what Jesus speaks, then you can expect to get what Jesus got. Some will believe and rejoice and follow, and some will reject and rage and persecute, maybe even unto death. But even when faced with death, we can do what Jesus did. We can do what Stephen did. Not turn away, not give up. We can pray for those who are even acting this wickedly and stubbornly and stupidly. Stephen is so Christ-filled that he, he can't but see Christ in all of Scripture and that Scripture just pours forth from him. There are probably 30, maybe 35 different quotations or allusions to the Old Testament in Stephen's sermon. He is just Bibline, his blood flows with Bible. And in his dying breaths, he spoke like Jesus. Now, there are a few lines I've skipped over until now, and they actually provide further comfort to Stephen, further comfort to those, no doubt, who that day saw Stephen breathe his last. And, and for those of us who read it today, we, we can find great comfort in these few lines of verse 55 and verse 56. This is just before the stoning started. It's inevitable, it's coming, his death is looming. They're grinding their teeth, showing their teeth like, like rabid animals and it's coming. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said, behold, I see the heavens opened in the Son of Man at the right hand of God. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't it glorious? What a gift Stephen got that day. What a foretaste of glory. Most of us will not die this way, seeing heaven opened, seeing Jesus' face before we get there. But Stephen saw it before he got there. It's unusual, but it helps us in that we know what's coming. He saw you don't need the shack to tell you. You don't need some story like that. We got, we got stuff like this in the Bible. Stephen tells us heaven's real. Jesus is there. He's reigning. He's the son of man who inherits all creation from God, according to Daniel 7. And if we believe Jesus to be who he says, then when we die, it's not the end, it's the beginning. Heaven opens to us. We will see Jesus. We will see God's glory and he will make all things right. And the glory of what's to come is of surpassingly greater value than any of the suffering that we have to deal with now. Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Why standing? Usually at the right hand of God, Jesus is sitting. It's symbolic of reigning. It's also symbolic that he's done with his sacrifice. It's finished, and so he sat down, Hebrews tells us. Why is he here standing? 
Well, it could mean a few things, maybe all of them. It could just be a symbol of his care. His man is dying, and Jesus stands up. It could be a symbol of his advocacy. Stephen stood for Jesus, and Jesus stands with him, not with these jokers. Or perhaps Jesus stood to welcome Stephen, to receive him into heaven. The King of kings and Lord of lords got up. so personal it's so intimate it's so special hallelujah what a savior we sing right so i ask you what do you expect after you die who will stand with you i don't ask you what you'll see before you die i don't know But Stephen gives us a glimpse of what's after. Will Jesus stand for you? Do you believe who he is and what he said he would do? Do you believe he did it, that he paid for sins, that he died in our place, that he was raised on the third day? We've sang some great gospel-filled things this morning. Here's the gospel. Here's what you need to believe if you want Jesus standing with you, standing for you, and opening heaven wide to you when you die. You have to believe that because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied in his death. He's satisfied to look on me on him, rather, and pardon me, to pardon me based on what Christ did. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what Christians have been commissioned by Jesus to witness to in all the world, even if it costs them their life. And if they do lose their life, that will be testimony to. It will be witness. That's how the gospel goes forth. And that's what we'll start to see next week as we finish the rest of this sermon and begin another one, as we turn to chapter 8 and see a new outcome of the gospel spreading, not despite persecution, but actually because of it. Perhaps this morning you will be part of that great flow of grace from God into this world that is swelling and swelling. As you come to Jesus and join us in worshiping him and representing him to the world, Jesus is building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Help us to believe it. Help us to rejoice in it. Help us to trust you. We thank you for truth. We thank you for this example of Stephen and even more the the example he looks to and we do as well, that of our Lord Jesus. We pray in your name, our Savior and King. Amen.